Hello, and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I am Kova. And I'm Kikita Kaori. And today we're going to talk about boats. <laughs> boats. All about boats. Uh, an important part of Rock Again, actually. Even though, I mean, there's a lot of coastal travel, there's the Mantis, river boats, boats everywhere. Very important. <laughs> <laughs> so there are obviously lots of different sorts of boats and ships that people are going to be encountering in Rock Again. Uh, we're going to start small. The, the the small kind of wasen, although I think wasen can actually refer to a lot of different traditional Japanese boats. But we're going to start at the small end. Things like the terai bune, which are tub boats. The kind of circular, well, tub-like boats. That I think very similar if you happen to know about the coracle, an early Western type boat. So it's circular, it's like a little tub, waterproof enough to hold one or two people. Used to paddle around often used to gather things like seaweed or shellfish. So you wouldn't be going that far out. You'd be paddling around the harbour, picking up um, food. Slightly bigger, you get into the Ayabuna or tenmu, Tenma. That refers to a larger class of boats. You've got the shallow curved boats with thick planks around a plank keel, but not much in the way of a frame. They would use square nails of iron or copper into chisel holes. So they would like, instead of like pre-drilling, because that really wasn't a thing, you kind of pre-make a square hole to put your nails in. So those, again, would be smaller because they, they don't have a big frame to hold it together. Right. And all of these are, are basically, uh, unlike uh, many European ships were lined with hides, animal hides, or lined with uh, pitch or something to make them waterproof, these were made waterproof by really excellent woodworking uh, and craftsmanship. As was pointed out in actually one of the... Battle of Cherry Blossom Snow Fictions, taking into account that a boat, if you put it into water, will get wet, mysteriously, and the wood will absorb the water and swell up. And so they would actually have built it in such a way that that, that would fill in all the gaps and make the boat watertight, which can be a problem if you then beach the boat for any length of time. <laughs> the, it'll shrink and then uh, it's very difficult to get it back into a seaworthy or riverworthy condition. Right. So the Terabune and, and Tema, you've seen the Tema on the, if you've ever seen the Great Wave of Hayasaka, the, the Great Wave picture, it has, the, has these long little shallow fishy boats. Those are Tema, Ayabune. But bigger than that are the Kabune. And Kabune are generally around 50 feet long. And they have crews of 30 to 40 people with supplies. They can have up to 40 oars. Really, up to two decks with 10 oars on each deck per side. And if you look at the artwork that they have for L5R, uh, it looks like most of them have one or two masts. Uh, and the biggest mantis kabunis may have up to four masts. There are two kinds of sail that are shown in the artwork uh, for L5R. There's a, what are square rig sails and junk rig sails. Now, the one-mast square rig sails are the traditional and the most common ones that were used for Japanese ships, okay? The junk sails were not Japanese ships. A square rig sail has generally one mast, one big mast, one uh, yard arm, one, you know, that goes across the mast that holds up the sail, and it's a big square of fabric <laughs> just straight mm. fabric usually one at most two the problem with square rig sails square rig sails are are fine and and they are the traditional sail used in the development of navies shipping across the world really yeah. they're the first ones big problem is it's it it can't really go upwind uh, if it wants to, because it has a really hard time turning that mast into the wind. And these square rig sails traditionally didn't have much in the way of a keel. So, it, you know, it, it really had a hard time going that direction. It was fine for going downwind, but it had a hard time going upwind. Yeah, yeah, which is why a lot of them had oars. Mm-hmm, lots of oars. 
Uh, the other kind of sale that you see in the artwork are junk rig sales. And junk rig sales have ribs across the sail. The ribs are called battens, and they run perpendicular to the mast, as does the main arm holding the sail. They work well with a smaller crew, and they are quieter and safer than square rig sails. Um, they are also faster than square rig sails because they can be turned to the side to the wind, and they have a, a lot less complicated rigging and finer control. So we'll talk a little bit about how shipping in well in Japan in general it was done when we get there. There was ship technology being shared between Japan and China, so it's not like Japan had no junk rig sales, but it was primarily square rig. If you want to think of it this way, in Rokugan, other clans have square rig shell ships, and the Mantis, because they've got better ships and they've got little bits of Gaijin technology, can have those junk sail ships, and they would be a bit faster and they'd be a bit um, more maneuverable and give the Mantis that sea advantage that we think the Mantis should have. Yeah, I mean, apart, apart from anything else, almost all the other clans are coastal ships. That's all they use their ships for, and, and rivers. But their sea-going navy are all coastal, whereas the Mantis absolutely need that extra deep water capability. So they're going to build their ships differently. And that, that all makes sense, yeah. So Yoritomo's ship is described as the bitter wind, and it shows up in a few stories. From the pictures we have, it is a junk rig ship with five square junk rig sails, three masts, and three decks, and it's made of cedar and brass. So that would be the height of Rokugani shipbuilding technology as of 5e. Yeah, yeah. Although I'm, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the clans would go, oh my God, look at this, look at this terrible foreign thing. Ugh. <laughs> it doesn't fit the aesthetic at all. How dare. And then the mantis are all like, oh, I don't care. Goes places. <laughs> <laughs> so what do I care about? So if you ever are going to be running a game which ha involves anything to do with the mantis, anything to do with sea travel, because there's all sorts of adventures you can have on a boat and all sorts of stories you can tell. You probably want to know some basic ideas of, you know, the terms that the sailors will be throwing around. So, yeah, the, we're talking about a, a kabune sail. The, the peak is the top corner. The clue is a bottom corner. The head is the top of the sail. and the, the foot is the bottom of the sail. And they also would talk of the leech, which is the leading edge, which is the bits closest to the wind, and the trailing edge, which is the luff. So leech and luff. I would presume that the actual Japanese sailors have their own versions of these, but, you know, we're translating this into English or whatever language you're, <laughs> you're running your games in. So, right. Yeah, I suspect the terminology would be equally kind of like, why don't you just call it the top? Well, because we're sailors, that's what we call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you've got to get that sailory vibe going there. So. Yeah, that, that nautical flavor. And if you are being told to climb to the head... You, you yeah. need to be ready to climb the rigging. Talking about rigging, I spend an awful lot of time playing with ropes if you are a sailor. So it's good to know what those are. So the sheets and the sheetlets are the ropes that are attached to the battens or those smaller bars in the middle of a junk rig sail to turn the sail to or against the wind. So those are the sheet and the sheetlet. So if they say, get on the sheets, that means, you know, go pull the, the sheet ropes. If they say, get on the halyard, that's the rope used to raise and lower the sail for any kind of rigging ship is the halyard. So that raises it up. Yep, very important because you want to raise and lower it depending on how much wind there is. And often when there's lots of wind, you want to start raising the sail as in making there be less sail so you catch less wind because that way you regain some control in in very high winds you can sometimes have almost no sail at all because any more than that your ship will start tearing itself apart which is not good i don't i don't know much <laughs> about sailing but i know that that doesn't sound like something i want to happen <laughs> 
one of the important Chinese innovations, which again, you might want to incorporate into various vessels, depending on which clan has them and where they're coming from. But uh, bulkhead compartments, splitting the ship essentially from back to front into separate sealed compartments so that if one chunk of the hull gets a hole in it and it gets staved in or some other problem or some kind of leak, the whole ship won't just fill up with water and sink. I think a lot of the most, I think a lot of the ships that you would see in, in a standard thing aren't big enough to really build that in. But as you get into a bigger and bigger ship, you start getting mm-hmm. yeah, to the point where that's actually a good idea. So if, if one part gets staved in because you hit a rock or someone rammed you or sea monster bit, bit you, most of the ship can still float. Yeah, we don't see bulkhead compartments as being something it, that we imagine for these these old ships, but they they had them, and you can have them, and it does do some cool things for drama wise, as in terms of an RPG, is you're sinking and the bulkheads, you know, fill, and you know it does. I mean, it doesn't mean it goes straight down, so you can have a lot of tension as you're trying to move through a sinking ship, which I think is cool <laughs> it's also part of the scenery if you're in the ship even if it's not sinking and you're trying to you know find the person who did the crime or if you're trying to sneak about getting into that special cargo that you're supposed to get hold of or whatever or you're, you're chasing conspirators then where the bulkheads are and how tough they are and where you get through them from one part of the ship to the other that can all be part of the gameplay mm-hmm because you'd have to like search one compartment, go back up on the deck, and then search another compartment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or that there may be like sealable doors in between, but that means that there's a restricted point of access, and that can be used against you. That can be something you use, and tum tum, all sorts of options. <laughs> now, how do we steer these ships? You don't have a have a wheel. <laughs> okay, that that's not that's not really a, a thing. Um, no. They have a special deck, you know, it's a raised part with a really, really big rudder, all right, with a tiller. A tiller is the post that you push or pull on to make the rudder turn one direction or another. On a big ship, it would take three people to control the rudder, pushing and pulling to, to keep it in. So this is this is a big, it's like pushing a, a two by four to a tree trunk. I mean, it's they're, they're pretty big. And you can actually have them such that you need several people to push and pull them. Mm-hmm. Especially if the weather's high. <laughs> yes, yes. If things are going badly, then you may well have to have a number of people kind of in the big dramatic scene trying to, to move that tiller back and forth. Um, it'd be very, very gripping. <laughs> so the next kind of size of ship up would be the Sengoku Bune. And that can have crews of up to 60, 70 people. Generally, I think, I think 50 was more your average. And that's going to be your merchant ship, because that's carrying like anything up to 100 tons. In Legend of the Five Rings, they appear after the second day of Thunder. So possibly in the new 5R timeline, they wouldn't be around. But having said that, we've got Chagatai, who wouldn't normally have been around until after the second day of thunder. So, you know, <laughs> who knows what's available. Right. The next size ship up from the Sengoku period is the Atakabune, which were the iron ships. And these are very, very large iron-plated warships. They were built to resist cannon and fire arrows. They were used in the invasion of Korea, they were not as sturdy as the Korean Navy's Panoxion, or turtle ships. Yeah. But they were big. They were big. Uh, and they didn't even start to be made until you had you reached Nobunaga and, and lots of contact with the Portuguese and that sort of thing. They would have over 100 oarsmen. These, these were big guys. Now, what happened in Japan is they, you got these big ships, all right? They could fit like 300 people on them. I mean, these were these are big ships. Mm. But after the Atakabune that were made by Nobunaga and commissioned by Hideyoshi, 
Toitomo Hideyoshi and all the wars where Japan invaded Korea. After that, during the Tokugawa shogunate, there were none of them allowed. There were no ships allowed that were over 75 feet long and all foreign trade and travel ceased for centuries. Just shut it down. There's a very small amount of allowed trade, but it was very small and it was very contained. And the Tokugawa government did not want any of the daimyo to have the option to suddenly sail up and down the coast with a great big ship full of people. Mm-hmm. Because that would be bad, and that's that's how revolutions start, and that's how you you get your dynasty overthrown, and by overthrown, I mean completely murdered. So <laughs> mysteriously, that is not something they wanted. So yeah, the the yeah Takabune kind of uh, stopped happening after the um, invasion of Korea. Right. So once you've got your ship, it's all very well having a ship, but you need to know where it goes. Mm-hmm. It's very important. Now, for the coastal vessels, you probably don't need to worry that much. So this is going to be rather more your mantis and your tortoise, because they're the ones who actually go out to sea, really. Mm-hmm. We, for for most, say, most of the crane navy is like, how do you navigate? Well, when you're going down the coast, you make sure the coast is on the right-hand side. And when you're going up the coast, you make sure the coast is on the left-hand side. And that's it. Pretty much. And you, just, you have someone who knows the area who goes, yeah, we, we need to go out a little bit because of the rocks. But when you are mantis or tortoise, then you really do need to know where you're going. So there were compasses, and compasses have been mentioned in-game. Mm-hmm. They're largely going to be from your mantis and your unicorn. They're going to be the ones who mostly have that kind of contact. And the, the tortoise, we tend to gloss over them, but they're going to have access <laughs> to that as well. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're going to be able to tell which way to go. They are accessible and they are not forbidden. Mm. So it is no. in, in Rokugan, there is some trade um, with uh, foreign lands allowed. And this isn't on the list of forbidden items. Yeah. yeah. But it be have a pretty I, high price. <laughs> yeah. And I suspect actually for a lot of people, for most people in Rokugan, having a compass is almost useless. Because mm-hmm. the land is pretty civilized, and where do I want to go? And it's someone will tell you, follow that road. And there are going to be so many mountains and twists and turns and rivers and things. It's simply saying, I need to go north. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I'd like to go north, but there's a slight canyon. <laughs> that kind of thing. So it's, it's all going to be directions. Um, probably, mm-hmm. probably more like in the unicorn lands, because they've got much more of that kind of flat, open landscape mm-hmm. than I think you get. Right. Anywhere else, yeah. Now, even without the compass technology, even without that, there are things that are good for indicating direction. And so one of the ones that was a cool invention from China in about uh, 210, and then it was moved to Japan around uh, 650 Common Era, was something that was called a south-pointing chariot. And a south-pointing chariot looks like a wheeled chariot. It uses gears to control a pointer. And the pointer looks like a a little immortal that always points south, no matter how the chariot is turned. We can guess how they worked, and we have pictures, but we don't know exactly how they worked. It was a gearing thing. Yeah. So I I think that south-pointing chariots are cool. I think they sound very Caillou. So yeah. if, you know, they, they're not incredibly sturdy, like you wouldn't want to take them on a huge trek deep into the Shadowlands, but I can definitely see Kiyo being much more comfortable with uh, planning and navigating in Crablands with yeah. something that they know how it works and is full of cogs and gears and, uh, yes. you know, a little statue of Shinsei on the top than they yeah, would yeah. this magical uh, arrow uh, that the unicorn says always points north. So I can totally see the Caillou having south-pointing chariots um, that they use for, you know, basically construction <laughs> and, uh, mm. you know, general general navigation, not deep in the Shadowlands, but very... Well, yeah. I mean, my understanding is beyond, like, wall sight mm-hmm. or, or thereabouts, the Shadowlands shifts so much that I'm not entirely sure that 
<laughs> many much much surveying equipment will be of any use at all <laughs> simply because like well okay we can tell you exactly where this mountain is now but we come back tomorrow it'll be somewhere else so not all that useful. Maybe it may, but it might be something interesting to put in. It's also good yeah. for, as, as I said, for planning your buildings uh, yeah. and construction. Having something like that that always mm. points a certain direction is is good. Uh, maybe for for doing certain kinds of maps, you could have a adventure where. Uh, you got a cart with this for some reason, and you you got to do it. <laughs> anyway, I liked it. I thought it was cool. So no, no, it's great. It's it. often <laughs> it can also be a combined with an odometer. Uh, for those who don't, mm-hmm. odometer is like how far have you traveled? And mm-hmm. so I want to know if I've traveled how many miles. And so you could actually combine this with with your your geared chariot because it's. Mm-hmm. When the wheels turn, the idea is they turn gears and other gears, and that ends up with a thing always pointing the same direction. You could also have something that as the wheels turn, they turn another mechanism that will drop a pebble into a bin mm-hmm. every, you know, 100 revolutions or someone's calculated a mile or the equivalent mm-hmm. rocket gun unit, and it'll just drop a pebble in a bin. Right, and that is something that existed in in China at the same time as this. So, so basically, if you were doing an imperial cartography campaign, if you wanted, you could have a little cart that you end up pushing across the countryside, and it's ticking off the miles with pebbles, and it's showing the direction with your little man, and you're trying not to have it broken by bandits or anything else as you you wheel this cart around the countryside for someone who wants to try and make an accurate map. So I think that would be a great campaign. I think that would be a cool thing, yeah. There also were astrolabes in in China, at at the time, which is uh, which were used to map the star positions, stars could be used were used for navigation um, on land and and off. Um, the The knowledge of astronomy for navigation was plenty extensive. Um, yeah, and so and we know that the mantis from the fiction where Yoritomo blows up a volcano by being careless. <laughs> Um, or dashing and swashbuckling, depending on your point of view, I suppose. <laughs> we know that they've got a extensive knowledge of the stars and which stars are available in which hemisphere and all that sort of thing. And so, yes, things like astrolabes and, and other stellar navigation. Also, astrolabes is cool. They are cool. Neat. You should look them up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we were talking about about the different ropes and pieces of sail and stuff you might have to uh, be pulling for your uh, for your shipboard campaign. Uh, so I thought I'd revisit the you know some general nautical terms for your for your pirates to be you know shouting at each other about. Obviously, this would have an equivalence in Japanese. But. I, I think you'll find that they are independent naval merchants. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, windward is the side of the ship that is facing the wind. The lee yep. is the side of the ship facing downwind or away from the wind. Port is the left side of the ship if you are facing the front of the ship. And starboard is the right side of the ship if you are facing the front of the ship. Mm-hmm. And the prow is the front of the ship also called the bow, and the stern is the back of the ship. So now you can say, you know, go to stern. And if you give your give your sea-bound samurai these notes, then maybe they can, you can talk like a pirate while you navigate around on your ship. Sorry, independent merchant. Yes, independent, independent merchant. naval merchants. <laughs> <laughs> We're salvage operators. We salvage from 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 sinking ships. It's just they weren't necessarily sinking before we got to them. <laughs> <laughs> speaking speaking of independent naval merchanting, uh, naval combat in the period because this cannons aren't common and may or may not exist at all in Rockgan or in the world that Rockgan lives in. You generally don't have the kind of Napoleonic 
naval combat with broadsides and and all that and raking fire and and all that kind of stuff. The ships were very often effectively platforms to ferry soldiers about. And if you want to capture another ship, you start off with long-range archery to kind of cut down the number of people on the deck, and then you maneuver close in, and then you join the ships together, and then you go across and have a land battle, essentially. So that was pretty much how naval combat worked. It's not that you couldn't put big-ish like ballistas and and such like on your ships, but it probably wasn't that common. I suspect it's only going to be the crab ships that have the front-mounted ballistas. Everyone else is going to be out-end boarding boarding actions. Yeah, there was a story where um, Aguri uh, Yasuki offered the Mantis ballista to put on their ships, and the Mantis were just, like, not Mm. interested. (laughs) Yeah. We got we got this. Yeah. They have Shigenja. We're that fine. That, so. We know what we're doing. <laughs> well, true. So, you know, that we thought we'd talk a little bit more about what sailing life was in, mm-hmm. in Japan for those who were sailors. Um, so that you and then we can talk about, uh, you know, different clans and different um, different other things that we we care about. So because. Even though Japan is an island nation, and a lot of the early battles involved ships, by the time you get to the Sengoku, you've got the cannons, you've got these gigantic ships, and then suddenly you're wiped out of all Navy stuff for a very long time. For much of the Edo period, the, and therefore technology-wise, what we see in Rokugan, okay, because... Rokugan is a mishmash of many, many different parts of history. But technology-wise, it's kind of the Edo period. Yeah. During that time, who was going to have the boats were going to be the the waku or the wako. These are Japanese and Chinese and Korean pirates. They were all kind of living together. Yeah. They they were a mixed bunch of outcasts from... Their societies, if you will, but they were really wealthy. Yeah, they were. These pirates were there between the 13th and 16th centuries, and they were made to pray. They they preyed on all trade between Japan, Korea, and China, and they got wiped out during the Tokugawa shogunate. But they really they they were the naval power of Japan until the Asakabune were built. And they got wiped out in so much as you can wipe out pirates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they lived on the outlying islands from Japan, such as Okinawa, but there are lots and lots of islands. Yes, um, thousands. And also thousands. on... Right. Uh, they also lived on Taiwan. Their ships would carry... So those, we think of pirate ships, you know, potentially as Japanese pirates, little ships. No, these guys had beefy ships. Their ships carried as many as many as 300 people, and the smallest were 50 to 80. They operated in fleets of 50 or more ships. And some lords, some of the lords of these waku had up to 1,400 ships. Okay? Yeah. So, these, when we say a pirate came to raid a town, no, you're talking about 500 ships coming in really raiding, taking everything and taking him away. So that's, I mean, when we're talking Waco, that's what we're talking about. Um, Their ships didn't generally have keels and the square hulls, but the pirates would use, you know, at the time the ships didn't have those things, but the pirates, since they were Chinese and Japanese, they would mix um, the Chinese junk sails and add keels and do other things to increase their ship yep. technologies. So so the Wako really are the, the model from which the Mantis were built. They're very powerful. So so how would this translate into Rokugan? So we can look at the, the Mantis ships. The Mantis are obviously going to be your biggest naval power. They're going to be the ones who, you know, have most to do with these vessels. They're likely to have junk-sailed ships uh, up to three masts. 
although their big flagship has five. Up to five sails, crewed around 50. So that's going to be your average that you're going to meet. There's going to be smaller than that. There's going to be larger than that. But that's what you're going to expect most of the time. With your crane ships, on the other hand, who have possibly, or at least before the tsunami hit, possibly the largest navy in terms of actual ships, although most of those are going to be merchant ships, because those are coastal sailors going up and down the coast and don't need to go into the deep waters. Square-sailed, generally no more than two masts with four sails. Crewed up to 40, there could be some bigger ones. Those would be your really big cargo ships. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on average, that's kind of what you're looking at. And then you've got your iron, your crab ships, which would be the Atakebune, or iron turtles. Generally, not very many sails. Primarily rowed but they can carry up to 100 or so. And you'll get the ironclad Yasuki merchant vessels, which are going to be like crane ships, only tougher and, and more armoured. So those, mm-hmm. I think you're going to be your, your kind of what you're likely to see. The Phoenix also have a big coastline, but uh, we tend not to think of the Phoenix as having much of a navy, but they must have something. Probably rather like the crane ships, only smaller. They they have, but the the Phoenix coastline, if you look at it, is really really rugged. It's very mm. cliff, yeah. uh, cliff oriented with with little harbors, which means it's not uh, it's not a good place to do a bunch of shipbuilding <laughs> and mm. ship storing. Plus, they can yeah 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 yeah. Th- they have other ways of getting things around too. So mm. you know. It takes it takes more than just coastline. It takes having natural yeah. harbors, and there are a couple, um, but not very many on the Phoenix side. Yeah. So if you are a sailor, uh, you are going to generally be sleeping in hammocks or futons. Hammocks are just universally pretty good on boats because they stay mm. stable when the boat doesn't. And they can be easily stored away, and they don't take out much floor space, and da 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 da. Yeah, really, really, right. really useful for. And they don't get waterlogged, unlike a futon. So there will be cabins for the captain and high-ranking samurai. Not a lot of cabins. Sailor garb is generally going to be easy to repair and heavy cloth. As an item, it's in the Mantis book, it reduces the TN to maintain a repair by one. And, you know, sailors aren't going to be wearing shoes on the ship. Uh, or tabby, there's no point. It's slippery, <laughs> and it will be difficult to do so. So, at least people who are used to living on the boat are not going to be wearing wearing shoes. No. So we've been talking about the the sailing life and all that, and we keep coming back to the mantis because they are obviously going to be the the clan that is most associated with ships and sailing and boats and all that, because that's in pretty much their entire life. We do have more information about the Mantis in the Mantis download content on the FFG website, and we're going to have a link to that in our show notes. So they got a free supplement, which you can download. You look at them. We could probably do an entire episode on the Minor Clan. Going, you know, going quickly, they are officially a Minor Clan, Founded originally as an offshoot of the Crab Clan, descended from Osanawo, who was the grandson of Hida. They live on the islands of Spice and Silk off the coast of Rokugan. The Manta Clan are known for seafaring. It's known that they've got a lot of contact with the Gaijin and do trade with them. They have a thriving business in mercenaries. That's a, a common thing for their samurai to be hired out as mercenaries. And also well-known is their ambition. They have ambition to be seen as equal to the great clans. They are currently led by Yoritomo. The tradition amongst the Mantis is not to have personal surnames like the Hida, like the Hiruma, like the Kakita, and so forth. They tend to be known by either the ship they're currently sailing in, so Bitterwind, Yoritomo, essentially, or Bitterwind Noritomo. Or if they are not currently sailing, it will be the port that they are living in. They will style themselves as being from a particular port. So that's a distinctive thing 
that they do. Yep. They do have lots of contact with Gaijin, and they use uh, peasant weapons primarily. Uh, Kama are kind of iconic. There are two schools, uh, the Stormfleet Sailor, which is a Bushi school, and a Stormfleet Tide Seer, which is a Shiginza school. These Shiginja are called Tenkinja, and they specialize in understanding and controlling the weather. So that's just a really short mantis yeah. walk. <laughs> but there is more to say. There is. There is. I mean, in Old Father, in the AEG times, there was more detail on them, and there were, they had more schools. There were Orochi riders who rode the fearsome sea serpents and often did storm magic. They were also associated with the Bat Clan, the Kormori, and there is still some kind of association with that because it seems that Yoritomo has married someone who, at the very least, seems to have bat-oriented Shugenja magic, or at least <laughs> something themed the same way, but we're not quite sure, and she may or may not have turned herself into a cloud of bats at one point. We're not yeah, that was a fanciful story that we're being told. So who knows exactly how exaggerated it was. However, the whole point of spending all this time talking about boats and the sea and stuff is so you can present uh, challenges to your players or you as a player can ask your GM to throw you into situations with uh, with these challenges. So we're going to give you a whole bunch of different ideas of challenge, different challenges that you might face uh, on the seas. And also, we'll try and give you a bunch of adventure ideas for, for your challenges. Yep. So, the first challenge of the sea that we wanted to talk about is a typhoon. Now, a typhoon is a large tropical cyclone, which is exactly the same as a hurricane. A typhoon is not a monsoon. A monsoon is a seasonal prevailing wind blowing from the ocean to the land, and it brings a lot of rain. That's not the same thing as a typhoon, which is basically a hurricane. There you go. And obviously that would involve an awful lot of um, sea-related shenanigans if you happen to be out in the ocean when one hits. You're not going to have an awful lot of fun. But I suspect you'll be rolling dice a lot. and That's going to be a, a, a very intense time, I think. You've also heard about tsunami. Uh, admittedly, a tsunami is a much greater danger on land than it is on the sea. A tsunami is generally caused by an underground earthquake or a landslide or a volcanic eruption or that kind of thing. When you're in the actual ocean, you will almost not notice a tsunami. It's more of a compression wave than an up and downy wave. You tend not to get a like, huge, big swell and then back down again. They actually come about more by wind, those huge waves. It's not until that huge amount of water starts approaching the land and it doesn't have the depth. And so all that water has to go somewhere and then it goes up and then you get an enormous wave. So interestingly, a tsunami on the ocean is almost unnoticeable. <laughs> Another interesting thing that you will notice is pirates. And although the mantis are very well known for being pirates, depending on you know exactly... Of varying degrees of accuracy, must be said. There are also <laughs> going to be unaffiliated pirates. Even if you're a mantis ship, you have the possibility of someone trying to attack you and take your stuff. And that's a very classic thing to be happening when you're out in the ocean. Combat on the sea, maybe trying to negotiate with them so they will leave you alone, maybe maneuvering your ship so that they can't get at you changing the look of your ship so they are intimidated or that they think you're not worth going for. It's a lot of different mm -hmm. ways of running a pirate encounter that isn't necessarily just a straight combat. But that, that's, that's a threat and a menace. And also, it must be said, if you're playing Mantis, then uh, you might be the pirates. <laughs> Possibly. Which is looking at that from the, from the opposite side. <laughs> another, po another threat on the ocean that you can have are, are cre uh, creatures, uh, whales or sharks mm. or giant octopus or squid. These are natural threats with the ability to kill a sailor or crack a hull. Now, in Japan, and this would be true in Rokugan even more so in some ways, the line between a natural creature and a supernatural yokai is very thin, especially for creatures that are encountered rarely, um, like 
big creatures of the deep. So even for us, uh, reading a story like Moby Dick, Moby Dick is as much a, a spirit mm. as a living being, you know, yeah. in terms of significance. And so stories can develop for either that, that being that's attacking your ship can be sort of spiritual. It could be drawn there by the bad things that someone on your ship has done or, you know, something that happened there, or they could be a natural creature or both. Uh, One such spirit that actually is a spirit that has shown up in L5R is a Bakikujira, which is a bone whale or similar yokai. Uh, a bakujira, a bone whale, is the spirit of a whale that has been killed by humans and is seeking revenge for its death with fires and famines and other kinds of natural disasters. Um, so seeing a bakujira is uh, bad news for a port village, but mm. a cool encounter on the seas. You always get straight up supernatural things, ghosts. There are a few ghost legends associated with the sea. You've got the Funayude, which is literally ghost ship. Ghosts of sailors that have died at sea, and you can get a ghost crew on a ghost ship. The Umibozu, which is sea priest. The ghost of a drowned priest. A huge, shadowy humanoid figure with huge round eyes that rises from the sea. In either case, the giant ghost can... You know, rise up and demand a barrel from the crew, which it uses to pour water on the deck and swamp the ship. Because it's uh, a jerk. Not very nice behavior. <laughs> yeah. But it has to be said, it is, it is often said that if you give them a barrel without a bottom, then they'll try and scoop up water and, and swamp the ship, only they can't. And but because they are a Yure, they, they don't, they very often don't have the kind of they are obsessed with one thing and they keep following the same behavior. So if you just give them the wrong thing, they'll act as if they're giving you the right thing. So they will continue to try and pour this empty barrel of water onto the ship and that won't work. Sometimes you can just sail straight through them and that you kind of avoid the whole situation. But there is a whole slew of different ghosts. So who knows which one you got. You got to make. You got to really be want to be sure that you've got the right one before you <laughs> decide your 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 course of action. <laughs> there are also Orochi. Uh, these are massive sea serpents. They're usually with green and gold scales, and they are intelligent. They were originally creatures of Sakaku, and they fled to Ningendo to get some peace and quiet from the realm of tricksters. Um, they hang out in the sea, they wreck ships, and they protect the cities of the Nino, which we talked about in our seaside episode. In Old 5R, at one point, they made an alliance with the Mantis, uh, but that is not in New 5R. Yeah, or, or if it is, it has not yet made itself to official documents yet. So it's a <laughs> thing that theoretically could be happening, but it might be so rare that they've not yet got around to making a school for it, that kind of thing. Uh, if you wanted to be part of your game, then don't let us stop you. <laughs> you have our official permission, which you don't need, but we're giving it to you anyway. <laughs> Another famous denizen of the deeps is the great sea spider, and it's spawn the kumo, kumo being spiders. The great sea spider lives in a giant whirlpool off the coast of the Daidoji lands. It was also a creature of Sakaku, interestingly. But it's, it escaped using the power of the taint, the Shadowlands taint, to reach Ningendo. It was, to begin with, very weak, but it fed off the pain, betrayal, and rage of the Daidoji, especially when the Yasuki broke free from the crane. And it fed off that and bound its essence to the Daidoji so that it could get larger and larger and larger as it just fed off this, these negative emotions. It rampaged across the lands of the crane until the Asahina were able to bind it magically into that whirlpool, which is where it remains to this day. The crane have a superstition, 
which may or may not be a superstition, it may just be true, that spiders in the home are spies for the great Kumo. And so you don't allow spiders in the home. But at the same time, they are strongly taught not to allow themselves to hate or hold grudges because that feeds the great sea spider. Yep. So that's a, an interesting tidbit for the for the crane and, and why they do what they do. <laughs> so some adventure ideas for you to play with your players or you know incorporate in your campaigns. Uh, you can mm-hmm. have a, weathering a storm or other event. And this is a survival task involved with accumulating momentum. You want to accumulate momentum in seafaring. And the storm is fighting back by doing fatigue to you. So you have to seafare better than the storm fatigues you. Yeah, it's actually a a good idea. I've seen it mentioned a few places. You essentially run a storm or an other event as if it were an adversary, as if it were a monster. And it has an initiative and it's got actions it can take. And so it's trying to fatigue everyone. You you actually roll from time to time for it as if it was a, a living thing. Exactly. Making things very, very tense. But you can't fight back with weapons. You have to fight back with seafaring. Exactly. And and maybe using your labor to bail out the ship or <laughs> you know, using your ability to climb up and about to get into the rigging and get stuff done and all sorts of options that you have. So that, that could be a really cool group event. Another possible plot hook is a ghostly ship of Funa Yure has appeared and is demanding vengeance on one of the PCs. They believe the player character is a one of their ancestors from generations before who caused their ship to be lost. They keep pouring buckets of water on the decks of the player's ship to sink it. They can't actually be stopped. They're, they're intangible so they can't really be stopped physically anyway. But it is possible that an intrigue might persuade them to hold off their vengeance, maybe promising them to find out the truth behind the loss of their ship and their deaths, or persuading them that, that no, no, this isn't a descendant of that ancestor. They just look similar. Again, lots of different ways of dealing with them. So don't say it. Don't think that a shipbound campaign can't ever have an intrigue. There you could have an intrigue that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. A little different than some of the other intrigues. So let's see. You could have a ship attacked by Waco pirates and the PCs manage to drive them off and sail to reach their destination. Nice battle. At their destination, the Lord greets them and introduces them to his son, who has just returned from a noble sea voyage. And the PCs recognize that the son is, in fact, the leader of the pirates they drove off. So now they have to figure out what they're going to do. <laughs> You could also have an Orochi attacking the ship. Can the play characters fight off? Can they flee? Do they recognize it as being something sacred and thus perhaps not necessarily something they should be just attacking? Do they know that maybe the Mantis have a deal with them? And again, politically speaking, they, sh- they shouldn't just treat it as a horrible sea serpent monster. Many possibilities. Yes. You could have a shipwreck. So the ship the PCs are on is sunk, and they find themselves on a deserted island. Will they be able to build a raft, sail someplace they could be found again? What is on this island? Um, is there some way they can, you know, maybe the island is inhabited by pirates and they could get a ship? Who knows? They have to explore it first to find out. Absolutely. Uh, a man gets swept overboard. He is saved, but swears that he saw under the waves a great treasure beyond value or price. The sailors, and, uh, well, maybe the player characters for that matter, they want to go back and find this treasure. But is it there? Is it guarded? Is it cursed? Is it someone else's stuff already? Like, that's something for the player characters to find out. Mm -hmm. You can also have a mutiny. So a mutiny is a great... uh, possibility on the ship the ship you are on carrying you on a routine voyage to the mantis islands is this you know suddenly the sailors did decide that they are not going to uh 
follow the rules anymore. They, they've had it with their yep. captain for all kinds of good reasons, and they are going to chuck mm-hmm. him overboard and take off the uh, take the ship, and they're going to go off, become pirates on some luxurious island. Who knows what mm. could be causing it, but are you going to side with the mutineers and survive, or are you going to side with the captain? Are you going to... What are you going to do to deal with this situation? Is a plenty complex little thing you can throw in even a routine... Um, yeah. Routine little sea voyage. So hopefully we gave you lots and lots of good ideas for for your boat going antics. Uh other than, you know, turning them over and using them to build a barricade against the Shadowlands. <laughs> yeah. So I'd give a call out to our Core Games Network, which includes the Legend of the Five Rings LCG podcast, our Live from Tokyo podcast called Tokyo the Five Rings. And our two actual play role-playing podcasts, Crimson Gold Agonies and Fortunes and Strife. We also need to call out our friends at D20 Radio, who have a number of podcasts on any number of role-playing topics. So if there's anything you're interested in role-playing games, you'll find a podcast for you at D20 Radio. Our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs, as well as our website, where you can store and see longer-term information, summaries of our podcasts, RPG tools, and more, including letters and all kinds of things for our AP podcasts. For our Patreons, we have special bonus content like Adventure Seeds, Early Access, and whatever we think of, if we think of them. Online, you can find us at our website, courtgamespod.com, on Twitter at twitter.com slash courtgamespod, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames. But that's it for us this week. This is Kakita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I've been Corva, and until we meet again, keep your jade handy. Radio, your gamers roll.